I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. I know from my experience as a financial planner that we humans are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. Many of us struggle to see that money is really just a means to an end and that the decisions we make around money can change not only our life, but the life of others as well. I'm going to be speaking with guests from a variety of backgrounds and asking them to share their personal story and the influence money has had along the way. I'm also going to be delving into some of those tricky money and life questions that I've seen my clients wrestle with over the years. My hope is that the shared experience of my guests will help you think maybe differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Money Expresso. Now, this is an episode you're going to really enjoy. I have a free-flowing and amusing chat with a man called Emmanuel Gobbio, who shares his journey from a railway estate in Burgundy to becoming one of Europe's most sought-after keynote speakers, author, and consultants in leadership and collaboration. The conversation is absolutely rammed of thought-provoking wisdom and humour. Emmanuel talks about luck and the teacher who spotted his talent, which changed the trajectory of his life. He also has some fascinating tips for current or aspiring business owners on the importance of working in, out and on your business and identifying where you spend your time and where you add the most value. We speak about cars as status symbols, which are somewhat different to the views that my last guest, William Pratt, had on why he drives the car he does. And he talks about how he used an incentive scheme to teach his daughter about the value of money, which backfired quite badly, and why money is perhaps not the best way to motivate people. We also ask why so few people have mature conversations around money, well, money and sex. Is it shame, guilt, embarrassment, or something else? And conclude quite wisely that all change starts with a conversation. So sit back, grab yourself an espresso, or of course, a drink of your choice, and enjoy the conversation. Emmanuel, a very, very warm welcome to Money Expresso today. Thank you, Ruth. I have my coffee. I am ready. I'm looking forward to it. Thank good. you for inviting me. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now, Emmanuel, maybe a good place to start. Um, could you just tell us a kind of nutshell journey to you becoming uh, author, speaker and leadership consultant? The nutshell bit makes it difficult. It's been quite a tortuous and weird journey. Well, I, I guess, you know, it, it really started. So I, I came to this country in 1985. I, I came to study. I was given a scholarship to come to an international school. Um, and and that really changed my life in, in so many ways. But, but what it did is it, it, it enabled me to um, see the world slightly differently from the one I was brought up in um, and uh, kind of opened my horizons to to do things different. So so my journey was was you know if I had stayed in France was pretty much kind of uh, uh, you know designed for me because of you know where I came from. But um so so I, I you know I, I suddenly a lot of different opportunities were open for me. So I went to university in the UK. I started my career professionally in, in financial services. I was I was um, working for um, Abbey National at the time, which became Santander uh, as a management trainee. Uh, and then I 
discovered consulting because I, I got involved in a project. This was the first CRM web-enabled project in the UK with Abbey National. And we had an American consultancy uh, who came to help us. And one of the consultants, and I really thought this is, this is pretty cool. You know, the guy had a laptop. We didn't have laptops at the time, you know, and he was traveling the world. He was on planes all the time. I thought this is a cool job. And I got talking to him and he said, look, if you're interested in the whole people and culture, which was what I was responsible for on the project, you should really look up, there's this consultancy in the UK called the Hay Group, and that's sort of what they do. And I didn't really think about it anymore until I opened the Sunday Times one, one day and saw an advert for, for you know, Hay Group recruiting people. So I applied uh, and then kind of became a consultant, became uh, trained and, and, and more and more into the whole leadership and, and so on. Uh, and then, you know, went up the ranks through Hay Group and then wrote a book. So in 2007, I think it was, my first book came out, and I was at the Hay Group then, uh, and it did well. So, so the book did well. And then suddenly clients were asking me to speak at their events and, and clients were asking me to, to come and help them. And the problem at that stage was, you know, I was a partner in, in the consultancy. So my job was not to find work for myself. It was to find work for other people. Um, so it became more and more uncomfortable to be told all the time, could you do this, could you do this, could you do that? So, so I, I decided at that stage, because my publisher wanted another book, I thought, you know, this is what I love doing. I love speaking. I love, you know, traveling and, and, and writing. And so I thought, well, why not do that? So, so I left Hay Group and then started uh, my own consultancy back then. And yeah, that's kind of how, how you know, so, so I guess the, the nutshell is write a book. I mean, that's what enabled me. That's what made a big difference for me was that, you know, the book was well received and, and opened a number of doors for me. And had you always wanted to write a book? Um, no, I mean, well, certainly not in English because I couldn't speak it when I arrived. <laughs> so so that, that, was a, that, that would have been a challenge. No, I tell you, I mean, I, I have always been... Uh, so, so the, the two things that I've always driven me, one was ideas. I've always loved ideas. I've always loved thinking about, you know, how could things be different and what else could we do? So that was one thing. The other thing was I was always an entertainer. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons I say my path was pretty much traced for me is I was appalling at school. I mean, I had all I did at school was crack jokes, uh, put on plays in, in, in the playground. So uh, and, and what happened to me was so back in back in France, I. I was declared not matured enough to move on. So when he came to move on to go and do the baccalaureate, so A-level equivalent, the teacher said, look, he's not mature enough. He's just a, he, he's just a comedian. So we're going to hold him back a year. Oh, goodness. And, and so they held me back a year. But actually, this is what changed my life. Because what happened was, by the time they put me into the baccalaureate, I ended up in this in this class, which was an experimental class. And just by sheer luck, you know, it was luck of the draw. And, and what the experiment was, is there was a group of teachers in the college who decided that actually they were going to teach differently. So, so this was a very 80s idea. Mm -hmm. They were only going to teach people in groups. So we did no individual work whatsoever. Everything was done in little groups of four or five people. So that kind of peer pressure enabled me to contribute more um, because I had to help the others. It was not just about, you know, me. But the other thing which they did is they managed to link all the subjects together. So if you did, you know, Roman history, you would do Latin and then you would do Roman numerals in mass. And so everything was yeah. linked. And, and so they were incredible educators. And one of them, the English teacher, said to me, you know, I have a friend of mine who is a teacher in an international college 
Um, and, and it sounded fantastic because there's people from all over the world and it's on scholarships, so you don't have to pay. And it's, it's an amazing place. So I applied um, and, and we went down to Paris. She, the, the teacher took me and, a, and another child to Paris for an interview. And, and that's kind of how I ended up at the United World College of the Atlantic in Wales you know, got a scholarship. Oh, in Wales, right. So, so that's how, yeah. So I came, I came to Wales uh, and then uh, eventually went to study in Scotland. I went to St. Andrews University and then ended up in England because I thought, well, we might as well do all three. And, <laughs> you know, maybe Northern Ireland next, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's how, you know, that, so, so that, that kind of entertainment thing was always what I wanted to do I've always wanted to be on stage I always wanted to share ideas not not for the glory of it but just because I just love to inject new ideas into conversations and and so that's kind of what my job was about yeah and I've watched and I'll put some links in the in the show notes I was watching yesterday uh you were actually talking uh, in Wales um two leaders um, mm. talking about being from efficiency to exemplary. And I, right. A, you were very entertaining. I <laughs> l- actually laughed out loud on a couple of occasions. Um, and um, the, my colleague I was working next to gave me a strange look as I was supposed to be <laughs> doing my research. Um, and what, what I also really loved is that you, you break down your teachings into very simple kind of principles and the Mm -hmm. one that resonated with me as a former business owner is that need for a leader to work in on and out the business and that makes total sense to me could could you maybe just explain that just so our sure I mean understand it's it's kind of one of the hardest transitions as well to make as an individual. So so the idea is relatively simple. It says, look, there's some things that there are some things that you need to do. So there's some work that needs to happen, and it needs to happen now, and it delivers value now, and so we do it. Mm-hmm. There's another type of work that we need to do, which doesn't deliver immediate value, but ensures that we can continue delivering value. So you know, working on processes, capability. Have I got the right people? Are we doing in the right thing? Are we doing it in the right way? That kind of thing. And then there's another thing which we call out of the business, which is really looking out, thinking, is there something that's going to come and hit me 10 years down the road that I should be interested in? You know, are there things out there that I'm not even thinking about and maybe Mm. I should? Now, and and I say we because Catherine and I did the research together, but what Catherine and I found out is that actually – the ratio of time you spend as a leader between in, on, and out is going to be different on, on your level of seniority or the type of environment you work in. But by and large, you have to spend the bulk of your time working on the business if you're a leader. Yet, the way you become a leader in a business is normally by working in the business. So the better you are in the business, the more, you know. So it's really hard to kind yeah. of manage that ratio, but it is so critical. And, you know, I mean, we are currently in this pandemic and in a pandemic, you pushed right back in the business when you know for a fact that recovery is going to come on the business. Yeah. So you're constantly challenging yourself to try to manage that, that, you know, that kind of ratio of time. And it's really difficult because, you know, because of the environment, because what the organization expects of you, Mm. because of your own drive. So it's, you know, it's a helpful way of thinking about, how do I spend my time and how do I add value and, and where is the best place for me to add value? Yeah, no, it, it certainly resonated with me. Um, but you're right. It's very difficult to, to carve out those, those times. Sure. But um, Now, can I take you zipping back, Emmanuel? You, mm-hmm. you mentioned growing up in France. Mm-hmm. Um, and tell me a little bit about how 
you first became aware of money and how money was for you when you were a, a kid? Well, so, so, so my dad was a train driver. My dad started as a train driver when he was 14. So he was an apprentice. You know, he, he came from a, a working class family. Uh, one of five, the youngest of five, grew up without his father. His father died when he was incredibly young. Uh, I think dad was seven when his, his dad died. And so, it, you know, became a train driver. My mom uh, was a, a maid uh, who then was a shop assistant. Um, uh, and then they got divorced uh, when, we, when we were young. So, so I grew up uh, in a in, um, relatively, yeah, well, not relatively, in a working class environment, we grew up on a, it wasn't a council estate, it was a railway estate, as they do in France, so the railway owned an estate, and, and so we grew up on this estate. So, uh, so we didn't have any money, or we didn't have that much money anyway, um, but then again, nobody around us had either. So I wasn't really aware of money. Uh, I wasn't, well, I wasn't aware of the fact we didn't have any just because we were the same as everybody else. So that was just normal. Mm. Uh, we didn't really talk about it. I mean, I, I, could, I could see the pressure of it uh, on, on, on my parents and, and also to, to a large extent, the pressure uh, reflecting on it now that it, that it also put on their marriage. Um, but, but it wasn't something that we really talked about. Uh, I, I became really aware that my dad spent the little that we had. Uh, mm -hmm. He also happened to be a gambler, so he played cards. Uh, uh, and, and I guess the first time that I really felt differently was my dad bought a car and my dad bought an Alfa, an Alfa Romeo, and it was the Alfa Sud, Alfa Sud Sprint. Um, and he used to say it is the only one of its kind in Burgundy. And he was so proud of this car because we come from Burgundy. Okay. Um, so, so um, and then suddenly that was the first differential. I thought, oh, hang on, we're kind of different. I was tiny, you know, mm -hmm. I, was, I was very small. But because he used to drive this car, it kind of made us. And so it was, I guess, the first time that I thought you can buy things that make you different. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, I guess, was the first um, thing about money. And then, you know, I guess when I became 13, I got a job, uh, typical, typical French job. I used to sell cigarettes in a bar uh, at, at 13, which is, which is kind of what, you know, what you did back then. I guess. That was actually a job, was it? That was my job. Yeah, I was, oh, I was, wow. so, so there was a bar, it was a bar tabar. So it was a typical French bar, which sold cigarettes and I was at the cigarette counter. So that was my kind of Saturday and Sunday job when I was, when I was young. Um, and so, so then I started to have my own money. So, so then that was really when, when money became a thing mm. uh, for me. But before that, I have to say, I wasn't, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't envious of anything. I didn't feel mm. particularly poor. I didn't feel, you know, there was no real discussion, conversations about it. And as I say, it's only in hindsight, you look back and you think, oh, hang on, that's, that's what that was about. You know, some yeah. of the tension, some of the, some of the difficulties that we had, but you don't, you, I guess when I was a child, I, I didn't see that for what it was. It's interesting that you mention your dad's car, actually, because is very often a, a status signal, isn't it? The, the, the make of car that somebody yeah. drives. Um, I think that's true. In fact, you know, Catherine and I were talking about that on the yesterday because we saw a car drive past, which was, as it turned out, a Lamborghini 4x4. Uh, and, and the gentleman who was driving it seemed to be incredibly proud of it. Mm -hmm. um, and we were just wondering, so we looked up how much that car was, uh, and I think it's something along the line of £160,000. And, and we were just thinking, why would you buy that other than 
as a state, there is no reason, you know, I think that in the, the economists call this a Bengal good, uh, which is which is something which has no other value, but the value of, of the, the kind of positioning that it gives you. Mm. Um, and it's just really strange, you know, it, and I guess, you know, many things like that, I guess, homes and, yeah. and what have you, but but you're right, cars tend to be the, the, the status symbol. And I don't know if it's a male thing either versus female thing, but... Uh, I don't Definitely. know. I, more I my remember, dad than my mum. Yeah, I mean, I remember in my mid twenties, uh, with my then boyfriend, we'd set up a business in the northeast of England, and we did quite well for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And I remember I we got a BMW three series convertible. And yeah. I have to say, Emmanuel, and I feel a little bit ashamed to say, it, I thought I was the bee's knees. Oh no, <laughs> for oh, a short I, period of time. So, um, it's oh, I should I should get Catherine to come in the room. I mean, I always say, you know, when we ever every time we've bought a car, yeah. we, the, the the showroom has got it so wrong because I care about the color. You know, I'm I'm the oh, color right. and the interior guy. You know, I said, <laughs> oh, I'd like it in that color. Catherine is all about the engine, so Catherine <laughs> is the one who's always had the the cars. Uh, you, you know, she's had anything from the Love BMW, that. the Audi, TT, or all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, she even got banned for speeding once, but don't <laughs> we won't mention uh, that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, no. So, and and I also remember, you know, funny the, the memories that come back. I hadn't thought about this for years, but my mum, my mum had a boss. So, so mum was a shop assistant, and then eventually, my my dad's sister, so my auntie, got my mum to do an exam to become a civil servant uh, <laughs> to, to work for the state, and she started to work as a uh, she was answering the phones for the tax office. And then eventually she became actually a tax controller. So she went through the exams and did all that. But her boss, um, she had this boss who, who was a woman who drove a, a red Porsche. Mm-hmm. And I remember mom coming home and, and always saying, you know, oh, I'd, I'd love to drive a red Porsche. And that was that was the kind of mom's um, <laughs> ambition. I always thought one day I should buy her one. I've, ne- I've never been rich enough to buy other people cars <laughs> at that price but but so you know that that was i can remember mum as a as mm. a child thinking oh that that that's a nice car so yeah you're right yeah i, I can relate to it and I, I think the really frustrating thing these days is though you there's nowhere to drive a car fast certainly certainly not in the uk so well that, that's true that mm. is true mm. now you mentioned catherine and catherine's your partner um mm-hmm. i understand how, how do you two manage money in your relationship um well, we so 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 I'm divorced and remarried. So so mm-hmm. so when when you know Catherine and I met, we 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 had our own accounts and our own so and and we've kind of kept it that way. I, I've always thought I don't want to buy a gift for Catherine and her seeing how much I've paid for it when she gets the statement. You know, so so we've always kept things separate from that point of view. So we both have our accounts. We have we have a joint account for the house bills and stuff that we that mm. we both kind of pay into. But I guess we're very much a team when it comes to money. So so we don't um, we we kind of sit down um, with with you know with our financial advisors at Paradigm Norton, we kind of sit down a couple of times a year and say, okay, what's our plan here? What are we trying to do? What have we got? What do we need? What, you know, and Mm. so on. So really the kind of financial planning side we do together. Um, But then actually we, financially, we're pretty independent in the way we spend our our money. I mean, it's, um, you know, obviously any big purchase would be, would be, we would do jointly. Mm. Uh, But, you know, we'll go on, buy clothes on our own we'll we'll buy yeah. whatever so so it's a kind of a it, it's a mix between we plan together yeah. uh we and then we spend separately as it were I yeah, guess. No, 
Sounds like a good plan. Yeah. So you've been yeah. with the big picture, but on a day to day basis, you do yeah. your own thing. I, I think that's that's very healthy. Yeah. And and I um I when I was listening to uh, one of your films um, when I was doing my research, Emmanuel, uh, you told this lovely story about how you were teaching your daughter <laughs> about money. And um, uh, perhaps you could share that one with us. Uh, no, this was. <laughs> So Charlotte, Charlotte, I have to tell you that already. Charlotte knows the story and Charlotte is absolutely appalled that I'm still telling the story <laughs> in the same way I used to tell it, which is I said, you know, when Charlotte was seven or eight, she decided she wanted to get pocket money. Now Charlotte's 24 now. So, so she's kind of, she hasn't really moved on, but that's a separate, that's a separate <laughs> conversation. Um, but so when Charlotte was little and she wanted to put, to, to get pocket money, she said, you know, I, Papa, which as I, always say is the only French she knows. So she said, Papa, I want pocket money. So, so um, you know, we decided to have a, a, an incentive scheme uh, like parents do, you know, so we said, look, for, for, for tidying your bedroom every day, we'll give you 10 pence for, for doing, your, you know, brushing your hair, long hair, we'll get you 10 pence for, you know, for doing your homework, we'll give you 40 pence because in France, education is more important than hygiene, which is why we kind of tailor the scheme, you know, and then we have a, we have a special thing as well for not shouting at your brother. Uh, you'll get a pound and that's a stretch target, which we'll, which we know she'll always miss. So, so we did that, we did that, that, that flip chart. And then payday was on a Sunday. So on a Saturday, I, I sat down and I said, look, Charlotte, you're doing extremely well, but you haven't tidied the bedroom. So if you, if you go and tidy the bedroom, you know, you would have the full amount. No, so she went upstairs uh, and spent about 15 minutes with not a sound in the house. And, and if you have two children, you know, and there's no noise in the house for 15 minutes, you kind of know something is happening and it's not what you'd planned. So I went to check to see if the bedroom was tidy. And when I opened the door, Charlotte was lying on her bed. The, the bedroom was a tip and Charlotte was lying on her bed, painting her nails with the Barbie, with the Barbie varnish. And uh, and I said to her, I said, look, Lulu, I call her Lulu. I said, Lulu, we had a deal, right? You, you were going to go upstairs. You were going to tidy the bedroom. I was going to give you 10 pence. It was going to be beautiful, fantastic. And she looked back at me with the most beautiful eyes in the world and she said, Papa, I've been thinking, I think for 10 pence, it's not really worth it. And so that was the start, I guess, of her understanding of money and bargaining and collective bargaining then with her brother in, in their own little union. Uh, but, but she... You know, she did what every, what every clever child would do, which is say, well, look, hang on a minute. You know, I'm supposed to do this for 10 pence. So everything became mechanical. And, and the point of the story is that not just that you have to pay for the work you want done, but, but the point was that the following week when we said, look, we're going to see grandma and grandpa, Charlotte just said, well, how much are you going to give me for this? Because I can't see it on the flip chart. So, so you know, how, how much is grandma and grandpa? And, and the problem is if you move everything into an economic incentive, then everything becomes negotiable and nothing has value mm. other than, than what the incentive gives it. Um, and I think that was a really, you know, it, it, it's a really interesting, again, you know, this is not new, it's been researched by many people, but it's a really interesting thing about, you know, the kind of the difference between an economic incentive and a moral, uh, you know, and social obligation. You know, it's kind of, a, why are you doing this? You know, what what is driving you for to do this other than the amount of cash and and... Yeah, so that was our Charlotte. It's a great lesson. And, and you know, those principles that you described there, you do see very much played out in the workplace, don't yeah. you? Where yeah. some people and some businesses, it's all about the incentive. It's about the bonus. Yeah. It's about the high salaries. Whereas other for other companies and other people, 
culture and value systems kind of really trump? Well, it depends what you want out of people, you know, and, and this is what, there's two types of effort. There's contractual effort. So the stuff that we do because we get paid for. And then there's another type of effort, which is what we call discretionary effort. So this idea, it's almost like discretionary spent, you know, this yeah. idea that once you've done everything you have to do, with the effort you have left, what are you going to do? And that actually, that amount of discretionary effort is pretty huge and it's pretty valuable as a, yeah. as a leader to get that. But the only way you're going to get that is through a sense of obligation, through a sense of moral, social, you know, I'm doing this because I'm part of this great team because mm. I believe in what this organization is doing because I want to do good for my clients. Now, all that stuff, the minute you start to pay for it, you've mm. just made it contractual again. So you're back into contractual obligation. So... You know, for a leader, the important part is to understand that actually if all you do is you go for contractual obligation and you're going to pay for it and you're going to incentivize it, you're going to get exactly what you've asked for. Yeah. The trouble is in the world we live in, you don't know what you need. You know, you want your people to give you everything they've got to give you what they're thinking about to point out to you. I mean, I always say, you know, I had an assistant, James, who used to work with me uh, back in the day. And, and, and I always say the greatest thing about James was he did everything I asked him to. And the worst thing about James is he did exactly what I asked him to. Yeah. So if I said to him, look, type this flip chart, he would type it with all of my spelling mistakes, with all of my errors. And if I said to him, oh, you left the mistake, he said, well, you didn't say type the flip chart and correct the mistakes. You right. know, so mm. the idea of discretionary effort is to say, look, I'm, I'm going to do everything I need to do and you pay me to do. But I'm going to think about other stuff. You know, yeah. I'm going to tell you when you're likely to go wrong. I'm going to say to you, hey, boss, I know you want me to do this, but actually, have you thought about this, that and the other? And that you can't get if everything is just an incentive. And that's invaluable, isn't it? You know, I know from having my own team members is there's always some people that will go above and beyond. Yeah. As you say, that just that sharing of ideas yeah. rather than sitting yeah. back, it's invaluable, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and as you say, it's not it's not something that money can bring out of people but uh no no because you 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 know in order to make it an incentive you have to declare what it is you want yeah and 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 you can't you can't mandate people to have ideas i mm. mean otherwise there won't be real ideas they'll just be stuff made up in order to meet the incentive God, we could we could take this podcast down a whole <laughs> leadership and people management uh, channel, which would be fascinating. But I'm going to pull us back to money. Sure. Now, when we were having a chat a few weeks ago, Emmanuel, mm -hmm. when we were talking about doing the podcast, you said something that I found really interesting. You, you said few of us have mature relationships with money. And I wonder how that statement plays out either for you personally or what you observe in people around you. Well, and, and I guess, you know, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I said few of us, many, maybe it's many of us, maybe it's just me, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I wasn't fair when I said few of us, maybe it's just my, my issue. But no, I, I think it, it, it's interesting and, and maybe it comes back to the way I was brought up or, or, but I think, you know, we have many interesting conversation with many you know think about you know you go out for a meal with some friends or, or, or you're down having a drink or whatever and, and you're going to have conversation about how you're going to reshape the country you're going to have a conversation about how you know better how to manage roadworks than anybody else in the world how you can get from a to b you're going to have philosophical conversation how to raise children you're going to have all sorts of conversations mm. which 
in which you're going to bring all your wisdom and your maturity. And, and at all stages, you're going to say, well, from where I'm standing now, you know, I mean, I know for a fact that before I had children, I had all these plans about how I was going to raise them. And then they arrived and you just cope, right? I mean, <laughs> all your ideas go, but I didn't know that. So you can have those kinds of conversations. Mm. We never have the same about money. Yeah. Because, because, you know, we have more money than some of our friends, so we feel awkward. Some of our friends have more money than us, so we feel awkward. But we can't have this kind of mature conversation with each other about, well, what do you do and, and, and how does that work and, and, and some of the struggles. And so, so there's this kind of huge misunderstandings between people because it's just a box that we don't open because it kind of feels awkward. And in a way, you know, it's even more awkward than talking about loads of stuff. I mean, I, you know, and we found ourselves rightly over the last couple of years talking a lot more about racism and privilege and all that kind mm. of stuff. But, but we just don't seem to be able to, to uh, other than in a kind of, you know, national level or whatever, or a political level. But as individuals with each other, it's really hard to have conversations about money, you know, and, yeah. and, and what it brings and how much you have and what do you do with it and why do you do this and not something else. And, it's just a really strange, it's always been a really awkward thing. It has and, and for me, it's kind of like, it's almost like, you know, money and sex. I mean, they're the two awkward things you just don't talk about at dinner party. Well, not like the kind of dinner parties I go to, but maybe. But, you know, it, it is, it is a very, and, and yeah. you know, I mean, and, and it's a, and the reason I say that is because, I mean, I had a, so I, I, I do some work with a client um, which their business specializes in intimate healthcare needs um, and things like peanut replacements. And, and, and I was in a meeting, you know, before we started work, I said, look, let, let me understand more about your business, what you do. So, so I went for a visit and, and I had this, uh, this, this lady who, who was a salesperson who sold uh, uh, testicular implants and peanut implants. And she was just showing me the stuff and she was explaining how it works and stuff. And I just said to her, I said, you know, it's really strange, but it's the first time I have a conversation about yeah. penises with a complete stranger. And it just doesn't feel awkward because yes. it's an adult conversation about, yeah. you know, some people have cancer and accident. And that's what mm. we do. And, you know, we have even some for children. Isn't it terrible? And, blah, blah, blah. and you think, actually, it's really interesting because it's just not the kind of conversation people have. Yeah. And money is almost the same. Yes. You know, they're very childlike conversation mm. that, we, that, that we have. But as I say, maybe it's not a general you, you know more no than no I, I think I couldn't agree more and and as you were saying that I was thinking to myself yeah what is that about why have we got this is it embarrassment is it shame is yeah. it fear is it disgust is I it think, well I, I don't know I mean I was brought up a Catholic a Catholic so for me it's guilt probably no, but, uh, like most like most other things but no I I don't, I don't know I think I think it is shame um I think it is embarrassment. I think it, it's about not wanting to be showy if you've got more than somebody else and not mm. wanting to maybe hurt them. Uh, it's also, you know, in, in my case, I guess, it's it's just also about sheer luck. Yeah. You know, I mean, actually, there is this idea, you know, that you have to work hard and whatever. And, and if you work hard, everything will become good and stuff. Well, I seen my, you know, I saw my father working harder than I've ever worked, you know, driving trains in the night, mm. being away from home and, and so on, you know, uh, 
and and things never financially came good for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen myself, you know, being lucky to have a special teacher who opened the door for me to an international school, which I know, you know, we, we would have never been able to afford and so on. And I ended up in another country, being lucky to have a boss who brought me onto a project, uh, which made me, you know, see a consultant, being lucky to see an advert on the right day at the right time, being lucky to have been born privileged enough to be able to speak and write and, and so on and so on yeah. and so forth. So, of course, you you know, you have to do something with the opportunities that are offered to you. So it's not just all luck. But I think it's hard to, you know, to see other people and see everything they do and you're financially more comfortable than they are, even yeah. though, you know, on every single measure. And we've seen that through the pandemic you know we wrote a paper uh, a while back Catherine and I at the beginning of the pandemic to say look you know we suddenly realized that actually our organizational pyramids really are standing up on their basis on their foundations mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. the people who deliver it is the people in the shop it is the people who, who clean it is the people who actually make a huge difference yeah and um, so that is, so I, I guess there's this idea of of you know, you get to a position where it feels really awkward mm. um, to talk about it because, yeah, because this sense of uh, I don't know, guilt or, or, or guilt, inequality. You're, and yeah. you're right, isn't yeah. it? You, you you see it a lot in the care and you know in the health system and the care system, don't you? Where absolutely people want to pay very little to get their elderly yeah. relatives looked after, yeah. but they don't want to look after them themselves. No, um, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's a it, it's something as a society that we need to do some work on. I think, don't we? Definitely. And, and I, you know, and I've always thought, and, and this has always gone to um, the philosophy that I have in the work that I do, but I've always said, you know, everything starts and ends with a conversation. Mm. And, and this is what is so hard because, because I think the only way we can do anything is by having a conversation. And this is just one topic, which is really awkward to, oh, we have it in the abstract. Yeah. You know, we brought it to a national level. You know, we really need to look after carers and things. Mm. But actually, the difference starts when we have local conversation with our friends, us together, you know, and, and mm. I think that's that's where it's – so it's a really hard cycle to break, I guess. I th- and I think that's right. I think it is about all of us as individuals in our own communities or yeah. workplaces, uh, clubs, whatever they may happen to be, doing mm-hmm. things differently, isn't it, rather than yeah. waiting for us to be – led by uh, our government into into yeah. a different uh, world but um emmanuel tell me where is it that you find that you spend money freely freely on what what things or what what um entertainment and well, what areas do you begrudge spending money I, I i guess you know well this is a podcast so you can't you can't see but i'm just surrounded by books so so books is something i don't give a second thought to in terms of spending money i you know i don't have any you know ancient first edition whatever that costs thousands so so you know yeah. i'm talking about normal books but i i have never i don't I, I see a book i think this is interesting i buy the book i don't even give it a second thought so mm. so that that books books is somewhere i would um the begrudge thing is interesting because I don't think I begrudge. Um, so, so I, I mean, I have bugbears. So, so I begrudge spending huge amount of money on something and then getting terrible service or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'd begrudge going to a restaurant and be treated badly and yet have a, a huge bill on the table. So, yes. so that I would begrudge. But it's more about the, the service and the experience than it is about the, the spending, I guess. Um, no, I don't think I have anything I, I 
you know, begrudge spending. I mean, a lot of people might think tax, but actually, as I mentioned, my mum ended up being a tax controller. So I was always told by my mother, there's one thing you always do, which is to pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and she used to work in the VAT department. So when I started my own business, I opened two accounts. I had my VAT account because mum always said, you know, the VAT is not yours. So you yeah. don't live off the VAT. You put it in a separate account and you pay it. So, so taxes have never begrudged. And, and, and the other thing mum always says is, you know, how much tax do you pay? Wow, you must be rich. So mum always thought, you know, the more tax you pay, the richer you have to be. So that's a good thing. Yeah. And so I've never begrudged taxes either. I don't think there's anything I, I begrudge really. And both of those are such great tips, aren't they, about, you know, so many um, small business people, I think, forget when they're charging VAT that they need to pay that to yeah. the, the, the revenue or income tax needs to be paid. And to, to have that discipline and well done, mom, for giving you those. Early- well, no, I mean, it, it was always, you know, it's, it's really. Um, so we were we were really always a really ruled based family. I mean, you know, my, my son is going into the prison service and my daughter wants to get into the police service. So maybe we right. were overly rule-based, I guess. But, but, but no, you know, we were brought up to believe that rules apply. And, and, mm. and, and I, I mean, actually, it was a shocking thing to me, genuinely a shocking thing to me when I arrived in the UK, which is, which is the incredible amount of charities, the, mm. the number of charities and the amount of people give to charity. That just doesn't happen in France. Because in France, there's this idea that the government is the ultimate charity. So it's not a charity's job to look after people. It's the government's job to look after people. So if you believe that, then you have to pay your taxes. Yes. Because uh, that's the only way the government can do anything. Um, and so I was brought up in that environment that, that you did those things. But I, for a small business owner, you know, I was also lucky. I've got a great accountant. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to money, if you're a business owner and you have a great accountant and you can have a great financial planner, then you're yeah. sorted, really. Because, I mean, actually, you know, you have to be able to get great advice. And that... I, you know, I got the great accountant because the, the first thing I said to him was, look, you know, no funny business. I don't want to avoid anything. I want yeah. to do exactly what I owe. I yeah. want to do it right. And 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 he said, OK, you know, this is this is how we do stuff here. So so that was a good that was a good thing. And it keeps life simple, doesn't it? I think it does. I love it that. Does. You know, I mean, there's, yeah. there's enough problems in the world and having to worry about a tax inspection or whatever. You know. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah. um, Emmanuel, what have you spent less than 30 pound on say in the last 12 months or so that's brought you the greatest pleasure and you can't say a book no no <laughs> um you know uh, uh, so we we bought well i bought actually because because we bought it from amazon and i've got the amazon account so uh, a picnic basket Ooh. well not a picnic basket so let me correct that because this is what gives me so much joy a picnic backpack for two oh, yes which is a whole lot easier. Picnic baskets are lovely, but but uh, you look at them and you think, I'm going to have to carry this. Yeah. You know, and, and this just does not look comfortable. So so I bought a picnic backpack. I think it was $29.99. So I think it just, just made it $29.99 <laughs> or something. Uh, a picnic basket for two, a picnic backpack for two. Uh, so we're lucky because we live about 10 minutes from Hampstead Heath. Uh, oh. So throughout, throughout, lockdowns and so on when whenever we were allowed to go out we could go for walks and then when it started to reopen and we could stay outside a bit longer um we bought the picnic backpack uh, and decided well if we can't go out anywhere let's just go for a picnic which i mean is delightful so but it's mm. such a great thing you know it's Brilliant. very comfortable it's got yeah. all the stuff you need so no that that probably that has given me a lot of joy over a lot the of last joy. 12 and, months or so. and do you carry coffee or wine in your backpack 
we carry wine and I got into so much trouble because I posted a picture uh, of us having a picnic and and unfortunately it had two goblet you know two two kind of little um metallic kind of mugs in it yeah. rather than glasses oh. and my family were outraged because <laughs> I, I was drinking one out of this thing and the whole of my family were utterly outraged so I invested uh, later on into plastic plastic glasses so now at least it looks like a wine glass at least it looks plastic. like it gosh yeah. you have been anglicized haven't you I know, <laughs> I know I know I said oh come on don't give me you know at least it's wine you know I know you know and it was French wine at that, you know. <laughs> of course, of course. Oh, I could absolutely chat to you. I mean, I think we could chat away for hours here, Emmanuel, but I'm <laughs> conscious of your time and our listeners' ears. And so I'm going to um, draw us to a close, if I mm-hmm. may, by asking if you could leave us with your Emmanuel money pearls of wisdom, or, <laughs> or, or should I say, I've suddenly realised, I should be saying shots of espresso wisdom, shouldn't I, really? <laughs> so uh, what would that be? <laughs> Ah, um, so I, I always thought, and this this is something I discovered quite quite late on, I guess, in, in my life, and maybe I should have discovered. I think there's two words that that I've always associated with money. One which I always have, and one which I more recently became more important. And I think if we can actually use those two words equally as individuals, we probably would end up in a better place. But the first word is more. I think you know. If you grow up the way I grew up, if you, you know, you always think, okay, how do I get more? Mm-hmm. But I think the other word, which I should have used earlier is enough. And, and that word is what is enough? Mm-hmm. You know, actually what is enough? What, what, because more becomes uh, its own self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. and you end up chasing more. And, and actually you become really worried that you're not getting more and it becomes all consuming. But actually, you know, when you, and, and especially now, you know, I'm in my, early fifties and, and coming towards the end rather than the beginning of my career, you, you start to think about, okay, so what is enough? Yeah. Why, why more, you know, what for, what, what, what is this all about? What am I trying mm-hmm. to get out of it? And so I think for me, you know, if I could keep the ratio between more and enough mm-hmm. in balance, mm-hmm. um, I think that's a much more healthy and it kind of takes us back to the earlier conversation about, you know, a mature conversation, at least with myself is one where, it's not just more, 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 which is a very childlike attitude, yes. but also a more for what, you know, what yeah. is enough and, and when do I stop? So, yeah. so that for me is that the balance between more and enough and, and using those two words. I like that very much. And I can almost see there's a sketch and it's a, it, it, it's, it's a, it's like a, it's on a pivot. It's like a balance, yeah. isn't it? With more yeah. and enough. And I can see yeah. that moving. I love that. That's a lovely way to end the thank conversation, you. Emmanuel. Um, thank you so much for, for giving thank us you. all your thoughts and wisdom and uh, making me giggle a little bit along the way <laughs> as well. Oh, no, thank you so much for inviting me. It's so refreshing to be on a podcast that is not about leadership or collaboration. Oh. So, so this was great. You know, I thought, oh, this is, this is, I don't have any stock answers anymore. You know, this is great. <laughs> Good stuff. Emmanuel, thank you ever so much. Ruth, thank you very Bye-bye much. Bye-bye for now. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. So wasn't that a great chat? I really enjoyed Emmanuel's openness and the thoughtfulness around money and life. He, he certainly left me with lots to ponder. And a few of his references, uh, of which I could make a few cheeky comments, I certainly didn't see coming. Now, before you go, just let me flag my next Money Expresso conversation due out on the 1st of November with a woman who is challenging the long-held beliefs of the wealth management industry. That woman is a former private client lawyer and founder of the Good Ancestor movement, Stephanie Brobby. Be prepared to rethink your views on wealth accumulation 
philanthropy and taxation. I look forward to seeing you then. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.